I'm not a Syrian and I think any community it's helpful to have scholars were studying the US who are just American there wouldn't be perspective you need people who are not American to look at it and so for any group that studied that balance of perspective is really absolutely essential. Hello everyone, Adessa here, and it's so good to be back on the Assyrian Podcast to bring you this week's episode, episode 92 with Dr. Erin Hughes. Before I dive into her story, a bit of personal news. I consider the Assyrian Podcast listeners to be a part of the Assyrian Podcast family, so it brings me great joy to share with you that Asher and I brought our first child into this world on February 2nd of this month. Her name is Enuma Elish after the Assyrian creation story and we have been obsessed ever since. Just give me a little bit of time and I'll get her trained to be a host in no time. (laughs) Okay, okay. Now on to Erin. She may not be Assyrian, but she might as well be as she's been invested in Assyrian relations for some time now. Back in October of 2019, I had spent some time in California and was able to coordinate a time to sit down and learn more about her super cool position as an assistant professor and director of the Sargas Assyrian Heritage Project at California State University, Stanislaus in Turlock, California. Dr. Hughes will also be speaking at the Assyrian Studies Symposium happening next month in Miami, Florida on March 20th to 22nd. So if you'll be attending, don't miss out on her presentation. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. Now, without further ado, here is Dr. Erin Hughes. So I want to open this up first with going over a little bit of your education. You have a bachelor's in history and political science from McGill University mm-hmm. in Montreal, Canada. Yes, yes. Are Yay, you Canadian? Canada. I wish I were Canadian. <laughs> I was working for the Canadian government the past, past two years, and I feel like I'm an honorary Canadian now, but not not yet. <laughs> where, where were you born? I was born uh, in Detroit. In Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And then you got a master's in nationalism, ethnic conflict at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Yes. And then a PhD in sociology also at that university (laughs) uh, in 2016. And we'll talk about this a little bit later with regards to your dissertation, Mm -hmm. which is titled An American Atra, Boundaries of Diasporic Nation Building Amongst Assyrians and Chaldeans in the United States which I'm really excited to talk about. But before we get into there, talk me through each of your degrees and sort of what led you to um, decide to pursue them. Starting with Canada or? Yeah. <laughs> Part of, to so be honest. How did someone from Detroit end up in Montreal? That's a really good question. I'm, I don't remember that well. I know cost was a huge factor. It was cheaper to be an international student at the time at McGill than it was to go in-state to like University of Michigan. Oh, so that was a huge factor for sure. I remember going on like a road trip with my parents. We looked at McGill, we looked at Queens and Kingston, and we looked at U of T in Toronto. And in... It's totally superficial. The reason I went to Montreal was they didn't have housing 
moving, so I had to live in an apartment, and I that was the most exciting, attractive reason to move anywhere at that age. So that led me to McGill. And when I was there, I had a class on nationalism, and I was just absolutely hooked on that as a concept as to why nations secede and why conflict happens, and just kind of explaining so much of the political factors that happened over the past two centuries. And so that's what drove me to Edinburgh, because they had a program specific to studying nationalism. And, and what is yeah. nationalism? Yeah, it's kind of two sides. One way it's framed is kind of this idea of making a nation and a political unit congruent. So kind of the idea that a nation, whether it's an ethnic group or a linguistic group or a people of some sort, pursues some sort of political autonomy, a quest to control their own politics and their own destiny. And so there are branches of nationalism that are independence movements and people's aspirations for rights and inclusion. And then the dark side of it is sometimes that can lead to expelling people who are non-nationals and genocide and ethnic conflict. So it's kind of a span of a lot of political turmoil and better understanding that wow. over the past while. Yeah. <laughs> so that led you to go to Scotland and yep, Edinburgh. Yep, yep. So you're, I guess, an international student in, in both yeah, respects. Yeah, it's interesting being teaching in the U.S. now because I don't really know how American universities work, so it's definitely a learning process. And, you know, in Canada, it wasn't such an issue because there's so many favorable policies for U.S. immigration. But in the U.K., the experience of being an immigrant, I mean, obviously a very privileged immigrant in that sense as a student, an American student at that, but you did have a bit of experience with the mess that is the visa process. And so that was very eye-opening and a good perspective to have as well yeah and you decided to stay there for your PhD as well yeah I came back to the U.S. to work for Obama on the campaign (laughs) and then um, worked in the U.S. for a few years always knowing what were you doing on the with the campaign I did field work field operations in Michigan so like on the ground mobilizing voters mobilizing volunteers it's the best part of campaigning because it's so community building face-to-face it's so exciting and fun so I did that I always with the idea I was going to go back to do my PhD and I really want to go to Edinburgh my supervisor there was amazing the professors there are you know wonderful it's a really great community and then I happened to work for Congressman Sandy Levin for a few years he represents Michigan and and our suburban Detroit. And that's actually how I came on to working on Assyrian and Chaldean issues for my uh, dissertation topic was, you know, sectarian conflict in Iraq was happening. We were receiving a lot of advocacy from community organizations in Michigan, but also across the country, urging the U.S. to do more to help. And that kind of fueled what my Ph.D. research was going to be. Okay, that's perfect, because that was going to be the segue to my question and my next question, which was, how did you come to be familiar with the Assyrian community? Yeah, growing up in Detroit, you know, I was already really familiar with the Chaldean community. A lot of classmates and friends growing up were Chaldean. And then I'm a little embarrassed to say it wasn't until later I learned about the Assyrian community and that's the same people. And so that also helped fuel my research because I thought that was really interesting and really embarrassing that I did not know this connection. And so that led to looking to better understand these diasporic or these boundaries between peoples and how they come to be and how they are maintained. Could you talk me through your dissertation? Because the title in and of itself is really interesting. Oh, thank you. It's That was the very last part of it I wrote. That was I had the hardest time coming up with the title. I, I wanted to look at how people respond to your crisis in the homeland, how a diaspora mobilizes. 
And I started researching that and realized that I needed to better understand the groundwork of Assyrian and Chaldeanness in the U.S. and kind of what those mean, because there are people lobbying under different names. And so to be respectful of that and how to amplify people's messages and voices. So then it became looking at how diasporas are formed, how they're maintained, how they're perpetuated through generations. And so navigating all of these different institutions, the church, political organizations, community organizations, and how in each locality they help amplify understandings of what it means to be Chaldean, what it means to be Assyrian or Syriac, and how these communities relate to each other. And yeah, so it's kind of interrogating those boundaries of what do these different identities mean? Why have different identities emerged in different places or been sustained in different places? And as you were taking um, your coursework, uh, both within your master and PhD, at what point were you like, you know, I think I'm going to have my dissertation and my research revolve around... Yeah. The Assyrian Chaldean community. From the PhD, um, at the very beginning, in the UK, when you apply to do a PhD, you submit a research proposal. And so my research proposal was very specific to looking at how Assyrians and Chaldeans were responding to the post-2003 war climate. and Because at the time, my thought was, you know, my re- interest is in ethno-sectarian conflict and kind of looking at from that end. And then from a practical for point... The, for those that might not sorry, necessarily sorry. understand or know what, what that means, could you... Yeah. <laughs> for those of us non-nerdy academics, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, why conflict happens and why it takes shape along ethnic or sectarian or some combination thereof lines. So why suddenly a society where people are living together changes and some uh, some group becomes marginalized and violently pushed out? Why, why does that happen? And how do we rebuild a society after so it doesn't happen again? So my thought originally was framing it very much just around that. But then the challenges of researching that were difficult because there wasn't a lot of safety. ISIS happened as I was doing my research and all of that. So my focus became looking at these dynamics from a diasporic perspective and just really focusing on the U.S. because it's the largest diaspora. I already had contacts there and it just kind of made sense to to look at it in that framework. Your research consisted of mixed method qualitative mm-hmm. approach, which included interviews and participant observation, document mm-hmm. research, and archival research. Mm-hmm. What did you find in, in your research? or like key takeaways? I think one of the biggest impressions I took away across all of it was just the resiliency of people just so passionately and strongly and consistently advocating, you know, on behalf of their people, despite frustration and setbacks. And from the time I worked in, I did work in the British National Archives, looking at like World War One era documents, through interviewing people, you know, after the 2003 war as ISIS was happening, and just the resiliency of Assyrian nationalism and the Assyrian people in tirelessly advocating on behalf of Assyrians, I thought was just incredibly inspiring and something that a lot of times when we talk about conflict, it's very much framed as oppressors and victims and kind of the agency of people's loss. And so I think just being able to highlight that agency and how much people do and how much people work to fight back and try to do something meaningful and impactful. I know so often uh, Assyrians look within their own respective communities Mm -hmm. to say, hey, we need more scholars, we need more people mm-hmm. in respective academic fields, well, in all fields, but in right. creating academic fields. But it's also it also says something, and it's also very cool, when there's 
people out there who mm-hmm. are interested in Assyrian relations, Assyrian matters, who may not ethnically be Assyrian, right. but have a vested interest. Did anything kind of open your eyes during um, the different people that you had met and the research that you had done? Yeah, I mean, there are so many incredible Assyrian scholars that for those of us who are not Assyrian, I don't know that we'd have the same insight and perspectives that we're able to gain. There's just so many incredible stories and firsthand accounts about experiences of migrating to the U.S. and building communities here and building civic organizations and being able to talk with people who are involved in that process and why why it was meaningful to them, why they put so much work into building these organizations. And people talked about the pride of, you know, where I came from was Republican. Of here we have Assyrian newspapers, we have Assyrian television stations, you know, these clubs have Assyrian on it. The pride in being able to do that and the talent in across the diaspora and helping build and create these things. Definitely, definitely that. And I think your point is really important because I'm not Assyrian and I think any community it's helpful to have scholars who are studying the U.S. who are just American. There wouldn't be perspective. You need people who are not American to look at it. And so for any group that studied, that balance of perspective is really absolutely essential. My work builds off of so many Assyrian voices that have contributed so valuably to this conversation. Is there a moment that stands out to you in terms of your research, whether it was um, meeting with different people, observing? Uh, Probably for me, obviously, just talking to people who were so incredibly generous with their time and like the information they provided and realizing this isn't for the most part, this isn't people's full-time jobs. They're doing all of this work as a side project um, in a way. And the commitment and dedication despite having a full-time job on top of that, it was it's perpetually inspiring. And then when I was in Northern Iraq about two and a half years ago, I think just seeing the work of so many people trying to help rebuild and steer resources to the Nineveh Plain and all of that was just beyond inspiring. Like I think that's just something that's permanently embedded into how much work people are doing with not enough support doing it. And just that resiliency and commitment was, yeah. <laughs> and was your was your trip to Iraq a part of your research as well? Yeah, I had finished my PhD at that time and I was looking at um, what I wanted to do with my research going forward and so trying to inform what my postdoc what work would look like. Where did you visit in Iraq? So I was based in Erbil and then we went to, um, I was there most of the time, Saimani. I went to Dahuk very briefly and then I was in Bartala with Normati from Shama Foundation was kind enough to take me out there. Very cool, <laughs> yeah. which we've also had on the, the podcast. Yeah, so yeah. That's always <laughs> nice to have that type of connection there. And I'm sure you had a chance to meet with a lot of uh, different mm-hmm. Assyrians on the ground as well. Yeah, I mean, the same there. People were just so incredibly generous with time and information and trying to share the challenges that... At the time I was there, um, ISIS hadn't yet been defeated from Mosul, and so it was just... Wow, so you're there at a dangerous time. It was fine. (laughs) You know, people just were in such a limbo, right? Because, like, you don't know when ISIS is going to be totally defeated, what the situation of your home looks like, what resources are going to be driven, if you're going to be able to return. And so, like, that just limbo and that frustration that, you know, people have been in limbo for years was so palpable and understandable and unfortunately still not totally resolved. Yeah, I will say that earlier this year when Ash and I had a chance to go to Iraq, ISIS had been liberated um, yeah. by that time, but the feelings that people were having there was like, well, 
we want to be here as long right. as we can, as long as there isn't this instability. So if there yeah. is no instability, yeah, why not? There's we want to make a life here. We want to exactly. create and maintain our life here, but you never know, type of thing. Exactly, like you can't exactly. absolutely guarantee what will come. Absolutely, in a year, exactly five years and ten years. So exactly, yeah. and you see the protests are happening in Iraq now, and the government's violent response, and it just levels, you know, at layers to that uncertainty. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it's such a shame. What has your previous work consisted of prior to you landing your current position? <laughs> And where did those positions take you location-wise? So you um, mentioned the Obama <laughs> campaign, you mentioned yeah. you were in Dallas. What led you to those opportunities and locations? It's a host of randomness, honestly. <laughs> My first job out of undergrad was working for Congressman Sandy Levin in his district office in suburban Detroit, and I did immigration work there. And so that was still I think one of the most interesting jobs I've had because it was you know a chance to actively help people who were navigating a very difficult bureaucracy so I did that for a couple years I went to Scotland I came back worked on an Obama campaign and then went back to work for Sandy Levin in his DC office where I did legislative issues on foreign policy and homeland security and immigration and the same thing it's being able to hear from people from Michigan and also across the country on issues that they're so passionate about and concerned about and, you know, the role that the U.S. plays in these situations was really illuminating and helped shape what I wanted my research to be. When I graduated from that, I actually went to work on the Hillary campaign. <laughs> and then I'm trying to think. Um, and were you doing the same thing as you were doing with the Obama campaign? Yeah, field, yep, field operations as well in Michigan. That did not go so well, unfortunately. And then I actually randomly got a job. I was looking for a job. Academia is notoriously difficult to find a position in. I had taught part-time at Eastern Michigan University and then found a job working for the Canadian Foreign Service. And so I did that for the past two years in Dallas, Texas um, at the consulate there. We did political issues advocating on behalf of Canada and cultural diplomacy in the southern U.S., which was wonderful. And then I was at a conference, and I can't remember if it was Mesa, Millie Studies Association, or a historical one in Chicago, but one of my co-panelists mentioned that her previous job was opened, and it specialized in modern Assyrian history, and I should look into it, and I was very eager to get back to academia, and so it just, everything kind of fell into place wonderfully at once. Yeah. That's amazing. But wow, you have traveled quite a bit. <laughs> so Detroit to Montreal to Edinburgh, Scotland mm-hmm. to DC, DC mm-hmm. Dallas. Yeah. And, and now in Modesto, yep, exactly. California. Exactly. Yep, yep. <laughs> and some joke that it's the capital of Assyria than diaspora. So <laughs> how fitting giving dissertation It's the perfect place to be. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what you do there because mm-hmm. you just started, you just got to just started. Law State yes. and August. End of August. End of August. Literally just started. So yeah. I'll read for listeners about the Sargas Modern Assyrian Heritage Project and then we can mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about that. But established in fall 2017, the Sargas Modern Assyrian Heritage Project brings new and emerging research in Assyrian studies to Stanislaus State University. That's in Trilla, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, working in collaboration with the Sargas Modern Assyrian Heritage Collection and the Bash, is it Bash? 
yes. library. Yep, yep. Project facilitates student projects and research documenting Assyrian history and culture with a special emphasis on Assyrians in California. Project offers courses in Assyrian history, hosts Assyrian speakers on campus, supports Assyrian students on campus, and funds an annual research fellowship to drive student research into all aspects of modern Assyrian heritage. It's hosted by the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and the Department of History. Woo! <laughs> so you said that you learned about the position through a co-panelist mm-hmm. at one of the conferences. So this this episode probably won't be released until early 2020. Awesome. So if you could just talk a little bit about what are the things that you are working on mm-hmm. or planning on working on yep. from now to the next few months or so. Absolutely. Well, that's actually a great framing because we're kind of meeting to plan, right? There are a couple of things that were put into place before I came in. Dr. Stacey Fairhold was the first person to hold this position and is now at UC Davis. So she did a wonderful job laying groundwork of framing a modern Assyrian history class and diasporas of the Middle East class. So I'm teaching in both of those and then looking to think about what else I can develop going forward in Assyrian history. So thought I have is trying to do some sort of honors or graduate class in Assyrian nationalism or something, you know, so just kind of thinking creatively about about other classes we could do in that area. And so as your description laid out, there's a couple of streams to the modern Assyrian history project. So one is our library collection. The library's purchased, I think they have about 200 or so different books and volumes and things like that. And these are books that mm-hmm. any student on campus Absolutely. can go and access and check out? Exactly, or- yep. And there's a very, they're all housed together and there's a special, our library's under construction right now, so um, they're kind of in these annexes, but even in the annex, it's, you know, modern Assyrian history collection at the top. As soon as you walk in, you see it and all the books are kind of housed together, which is great because they're super accessible and, you know, makes it visible for other people who aren't necessarily looking for modern Assyrian history and don't, maybe don't know what it is and, you know, it's right there to see and you know hopefully catches people's eyes so kind of thinking about the direction that we continue want to take that what collections could we try to acquire you know political documents things that we can digitize and share through that where do where is the majority of the collection of books from is it from one person is it from multiple people do you know from what i've seen so far they've just purchased all the books they could find that mentioned Assyrians, Chaldeans, or Syriacs. It's really comprehensive so far. I know that they've acquired, I think they have a couple of back issues of Assyrian Star and a couple of other magazines, something that I think we'd be very eager to expand on those holdings as well. And then one of the thoughts we have is reaching out to organizations and ask if they'd be willing to share some of their documents about their founding or about work they've done and that, you know, scholars can access that we could house together and hopefully digitize and scholars studying these issues can access going forward. And then thinking about other ways to build it. So I know one of the ideas Dr. Fairhold had was oral history projects, especially of Assyrians in California and the Turlock area. I know that there's a couple of other oral history projects that are going on, so I want to kind of get the lay of the land. I don't want to duplicate or redo people's efforts that are already happening. So reaching out to organizations and people who are already working in that space to figure out, you know, how we can be helpful, kind of where gaps are that we can fill. And then the other aspect is wanting to do things that are more visible. So thinking of bringing speakers or conferences or small seminars can house at Stan State that are both for students and members of the community to participate in. So there's a couple of different streams we're just starting to plan on what we can do this year and what we can continue to build on over the next, you know, three, four, five years. And because it's still relatively young, yes. do you have the freedom to mold this in, into however 
Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I think of what we want to do and propose it in consultation with Mr. Sargis and with the dean of the college. We kind of will sit together and think about what makes sense and what ideas to kind of go with. Do you know what led uh, Mr. Sargis to create the modern Syrian heritage project at Stanislaus State? My understanding is it had been something he had been thinking about doing for a while. I believe he was involved with the Journal of Assyrian Academic Studies, you know, back in the day and wanted to contribute to supporting Assyrian scholarship. And I believe he focused it on modern Assyrian history just to, you know, have something that's really special to studying Assyrians now and things that have happened over the past 200 years. I think the modern history is framed longer than that. Just kind of focusing on now. And he want, you know, he wanted to focus on modern Assyrian history to kind of move past conversations about empire and antiquity and really focus on factors that have shaped the Assyrian nation over the past several hundred years. And I don't know exactly his... I think his connection to Stan State, I believe his mother lived in Turlock for a while. I think he may have gone there for a brief period before going to Berkeley. And I know that because of, you know, the size and vibrancy of the Assyrian population in Turlock, that was also a factor to to have local community that was engaged and would want to be engaged in, in these conversations and kind of developing things further. So I think those factors are what led there, but I might be wrong at well, well, any I point there. I think that would be amazing. Hear, you know a little bit about his background and and a wealth of, the connection. Yes, exactly, exactly. A wealth of information and insight. Yeah. yeah. The next question I was going to ask is what has the Assyrian Heritage Project done to date? And you'd mentioned the two <laughs> classes previously. Have you had speakers come on campus or anything like that through the, the project? I wanted to say Sargon Donabad came, but he might have just kind of done a voice. I don't know if he physically came or did a, like a video chat with um, the modern Assyrian history class. Yeah, I, I apologize. I can't remember. Yeah. And within the classes that you're teaching, mm-hmm. remind me again the names of them. Right. So this semester I'm teaching modern Assyrian history. And then I don't think it's ever been taught. There's a framework for a Middle Eastern diasporas course that hopefully I'll have a chance to teach next year. And then I'm looking to kind of develop a few new classes. Yeah. And within the modern mm-hmm. Assyrian history class, do you have any Assyrians in the class? I believe we have one. One? Yes. All yes. right. Holding well, it down for the Assyrian people. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, there's a clear need that, that I think the information about it just needs to be dispersed more because Absolutely. we have so many Assyrians in Modesto yes. and attending Stanislaus State, especially Absolutely. Uh, Modesto Turlock area, that I'm sure would love to take a class and learn more about their history. Do you know if it's going to be something that will be taught again in future semesters? My hope is that it's taught every, at least one semester every year. So hopefully we can get the word out. And I don't know if it was taught last year because I don't know if Stacy was here. But yeah, so my hope is that it will be taught every year. We can get the word out and get, well, get Assyrian students engaged. Totally. <laughs> Do you know, is there anything like this for Assyrians currently set up in other universities that you know of? I know it. Berkeley, they have a program, although I think it primarily focuses on ancient history, but I do know that they're hiring a fellow there, which is so exciting. It's wonderful to see like so much attention being brought to this because anything to amplify, you know that. I think there's a temporary posting they're bringing to UCLA, but I might be wrong about that. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not I'm not sure. I know that there's a couple of Syriac programs. I think there's one in Australia and a couple other places. I don't know enough about them to know if they're primarily focused on like history and linguistics or, you know, if it's politically driven as well. Yeah, so this might be unique in its respect of having a modern sort of Assyrian focus. focus exactly, exactly. Wow. I think so. I hope so. How do you hope to gain fulfillment and what do you hope to accomplish in your role? <laughs> That's such a good question. A couple of streams to that. One is you know, obviously the teaching aspect and just kind of bringing attention to Assyrian issues, bringing attention to, you know, that it's an active, living, vibrant, talented, resilient community. And there are a lot of serious issues in the homeland that need attention and kind of amongst students, helping them be better informed amongst that. For the project itself, just finding ways to contribute and engage with the community in Turlock in a way that's meaningful, whether it's charting histories and bringing speakers and just contributing to the discussions and activity that's already taking place in an already vibrant community. And then from my own research, working on turning my dissertation into a book, contributing, doing more research in that field and publishing. Publishing, yeah. 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 Is there a, a huge focus on that at Stanislaus State as well? Definitely the focus is on instruction. Our course load is, I think, higher, obviously higher than most, than an R1 research university would be. But for this position, I think it's really important. If you're heading something on modern Assyrian history, you, I want to, you need to publish in modern Assyrian history and help amplify scholarship in that field. So yeah, my own, my own focus is definitely <laughs> needs to be on that. <laughs> How can other universities model the Sargis Modern Assyrian Heritage Project? What, mm-hmm. what is needed for something like that? Is it someone who has a lot of money and has a connection to the university and is like, I want to put this in the universe, like, yes? Or is it much more complicated than that? I mean, I think that there's definitely an argument to that. I think, you know, some universities that already have Middle Eastern or West Asian studies departments or things that one could tap into and be like, I want to have, kind of what they're doing at Berkeley, you know, a visiting scholar position or some sort of privately funded or something focusing specifically on that. I don't want to sound cynical, but money is always a driving factor. <laughs> so I imagine that that definitely helps to kind of bring bring that focus and ensure that focus remains there um, is the funding stream. Yeah, it just seems like something like this is so vital, especially for a group of people that don't have an official land for themselves. If they're, they're able to, within their diasporic communities, be able to set up something like this it allows for sustainability for not just uh, for research for modern research Mm -hmm. if it is for modern assyrian Mm -hmm. studies and can be a motivator Mm -hmm. for students assyrian or non-assyrian to be able to get into the field or want to do more research on that if there is opportunities available Absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the other thoughts we have going forward is looking at how students can do research in conjunction with this project. And I can't speak to that yet because I'm kind of new and don't know the lay of the land there. But yeah, even especially for students who want to go on to careers in advocacy or into master's programs or whatever, that hopefully there's something there that interests them and that they can continue to carry forward or as teachers themselves or whatever the case may be, but across a variety of fields. It's a really, really exciting opportunity. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Your time in the Central Valley has been short thus far, but first impressions, you've kind of traveled and been all over the world, so 
<laughs> What's it like to now live in Central Valley? <laughs> um, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but coming from Dallas, it changed my perspective. The weather here is beautiful. Even when it's 100 degrees, I'm like, oh, it's not humid. This is yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's the lovely. Yes, it really does. It really does. Yeah, the food is surprisingly good. So we've been, yeah, we've been very happy so far. Nice. Yes, yes. <laughs> Have you had much uh, interaction with like, the uh, Assyrian community there thus far or like any events or anything like that? We, they had, um, this was planned before I got here, so I cannot take any credit, but they had Omar al-Bashir, I think his name is, the Oud player called. Yeah. He is, oh my God, You're so able to crazy go. talented. Oh. Yeah, that was wonderful. Yeah, he was really talented. There was an art exhibition. I apologize, I've forgotten the artist's name um, that happened just before that. So I had a chance to briefly meet, you know, a couple people who run the civic organization, a civic club and things like that. So I need to follow up with them and sit down and just learn. Get acquainted <laughs> with everything in due time anyways. Yeah. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And now for some fun questions. <laughs> How often, if at all, have you had Assyrian food and what are your... <laughs> favorite Assyrian dishes, if you can name one, or... Um, oh, Dolma's not specifically Assyrian, yeah. but I will pretend it is. Yes. <laughs> it's popular. <laughs> it's incredibly good. <laughs> um, actually, I've not been to a Assyrian restaurant here yet, which is a shame. I've been to Sunrise Bakery, which I think is Assyrian, mm-hmm. but in Detroit, there are a couple of good places, I think, in Sterling Heights, but yeah, I need in to... In Modesto, yeah. there's a place that opened up not too long ago called Betty's Kebab. Oh. Oh, good to and know. right next to it, there's a place called Babylon Market, awesome. which has like all of the market awesome. goods. Awesome. Um, really That's a good, wonderful really thing. Really good treats. Excellent. So I haven't had Betty's Kebab, but mm-hmm. I mean, it is a Syrian and I've heard really awesome. great things about it. So. I will be talking that out probably tonight, if I'm being honest. <laughs> For sure. Have you had a chance to learn any Syrian vocabulary this along is, the years? No. I, so I thought to myself, is you know, I'm going to be stable in Turlock for a while. I need to find an Assyrian like language program. And the only one I found is for children. And I'm like debating if I'm confident enough to sit amongst kids and learn Assyrian or not. <laughs> You're right, they do tend to be focused on, yeah, on kids. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm sure if there were adults who, like enough adults who expressed interest that there would be classes yeah. done in that yes. sense too. Well, and because, you know, I hope to go back to Northern Iraq either this to the spring semester or next January and so you know being able to communicate even minimally would be just a really wonderful thing well, to be able to do. Well anyone that's listening <laughs> yes. if uh, you would like to give instruction for adults who are interested in learning how to speak please read, contact write. us. <laughs> yes please contact Erin she'd be very interested. I would be very interested. <laughs> so I have to ask you this now that you are someone who has, I would say you now have an involvement within the Assyrian community. You know people, you know your connections. Within our own community, we know our quarrels and our weaknesses, <laughs> we know our strengths too, mm-hmm. but we know the, the politics of what it is with our civic organizations and churches Divisions. and all that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And we kind of keep it within, right? Yeah. A lot, not a lot of people from outside will be like, oh yeah, we totally know what's going on. But how... <laughs> How have you been able to still maintain a sense of, I don't know if positivity is the right <laughs> word, but sticking with it and not yeah. being like, oh my gosh, these Assyrian people are 
all over the place, right? <laughs> and, but, and to be fair, like Assyrians aren't the only group of people say, that experience that. I was going to say, everyone is right. all over the place. And we I think sometimes because yes. we're so into it, we're like, oh, are we the only ones that deal with these issues? No, I feel like Assyrians, especially, I feel like Assyrians are so much harder on themselves about like divisions than, than warrants because every community has massive divisions. And like, of course, the name issue sometimes complicates when people are lobbying Washington or whatever. But every community has major divisions that, whether it's religious divisions or identity or points of origins, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly hard to build a diaspora. And the fact that people from different countries of origins and slightly different dialects and different religious and all these different experiences still maintain being a Syrian identity and being a Syrian and working on behalf of the Syrian people, that's incredibly difficult to do. And it's being done really well and you've seen you know from a political perspective you've seen advocacy has become stronger and more impactful and reaching more and more people and you've seen incredible success in being able to influence members of congress and to get funding for Nineveh Land Protection Union and you know all of these things that have emerged are entirely the credit of diasporic activism and so no, yeah there's no <laughs> Everyone's I'll divided. Say, like, selfishly, when I hear like my friends who are like not Assyrian talk about yeah. their stuff, I'm just like, you know, I don't know. In a way, this is like a breath of fresh air yes, to know. Yes. I'm sorry that you also have to deal with this, but like at least you know we're not the only ones. You no, know? this is oh not like no. these are not unique issues that are particular no, to no, the Assyrian no. people. No, so it certainly I think feels we need like to give ourselves more credit. Yes, so much more credit. <laughs> and the stakes are higher, and people are grappling with incredibly difficult issues where there's not really a right answer. And give yourselves all the credit, sincerely. Erin, <laughs> okay. we have listeners from all over the world. Mm-hmm. If you had one message for them, what would that be? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> You know, as we look at the Syrian diaspora, and it's such an incredibly global diaspora, what all of these diaspora populations have been able to build and maintain and talent and dedication, resiliency and commitment is just absolutely inspiring and amazing and kind of illuminates the resiliency of Assyrianness and I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound incredibly cheesy, but everything that's been built on all of the talent is absolutely inspiring. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.